0: Michael, welcome to the show, and we're going to talk about your role in uh, developer relations in just a minute. But uh, as we all know, with uh, the current state of affairs today, everyone is uh, updating their studio lights, their ring lights, trying to make themselves look better on video, trying to make themselves look better for their Zoom calls, trying to make themselves look better in general. So I noticed on your Twitter, you, you don't just have the typical ring light. You have the full-on studio lights. So two questions. One, what, why did you decide to get full-on studio lights? And two, for the rest of us out here that maybe have not uh, embraced our, a good lighting situation, give us some advice. What should we be considering when we're trying to light our home studios now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Brandon, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So the, the reason why I actually went with pure studio lights instead of just a ring light was pretty much two things. One, I kind of heard, you know, down, down the paths when I was going is that ring lights don't work as well as, you know, standard studio lights, especially like if you're recording at a certain angle and that, that ring light isn't able to hit all the shadows and stuff that you have in the background. Uh, That's one reason. The second reason why I went with it is because part of my wall is actually red and black. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, my colors, like my chair is red and black and stuff as well. And I was, pointing towards the red and black which obviously looked very shadowy uh so that was another reason why i went with you know the the big studio lights versus just the ring light
0: so now what you went with like two like you've got like a couple of them right this isn't
1: just one light this is like multiple setup kind of multiple angles is that right yeah you know what actually i originally had two and then uh the first time that i turned them on for a video uh, i was about a 40 minute video and i couldn't see afterwards. So <laughs> so I decided to uh, to just kick it down to one, and one's been really good. Uh, actually, I have my Canon 80D, my DLSR up, and then right in back of it, I have a light. So it, it works out perfectly. Okay, because that's the other – it seems
0: like everyone's doing that now. Everyone's taking their – I don't know if they're old, they're quote unquote old DLSRs, but they're making that their webcams, right? It seems like everyone yes. is like has like broken this out. Like, I, I feel like this is the story people say is like I bought this when I had children, and I was going to take all these pictures,
1: and I never did it, and now it's a phenomenal webcam. Is that the scenario that you went through? Yeah, I, I mean, you know what? I actually have a pretty solid webcam. It's one of the Logitech. Um, what is it? It's like the 1080p C90 or something like that, the pro one. It's good. It's like a $100 webcam. But the thing is, is, you know, regardless of how good a webcam is, you're always going to get that kind of fuzziness, um, you know, and if you really want like a clear cut picture or a clear cut video, and if you're doing a lot of say YouTube, for example, um, or you're speaking at a lot of virtual conferences right now, which a lot of us are, Definitely want to get that quality in as as much as possible Um, because you know the the, the first impressions, you know, last forever type of thing. Uh, You know, so I I tried to get the best possible picture quality and video quality that I could. Um, So I actually went out and bought the Canon 80D for that specific purpose. Uh, I ended up getting a really good deal on it on Amazon. uh, And it came with like, you know, a few different lenses and, you know, a a carrying bag and a tripod and stuff like that. So I I looked out pretty good on on a sale that was going on.
0: Nice, nice. Well, yeah, there's no uh, substitute, I guess, for the glass in the big right. lenses. I mean, there's, I, I, I think I probably have this, you described the, the uh, video, the webcam I have, which I think a lot of people have. It's like, it's probably yes. one of the nicer ones, but, uh, there's just this threshold you get up against. You're like, well, if you don't have like a long lens and the focus, it just, you just can't get there. So, um, yeah. it's, it's been super popular. Now, what about setup though? This is, uh, you know, like everything in life, like podcasts, making video, <laughs> working anything. It's like, First, you start to slowly get higher in gear, but then it comes what I call, like, the setup penalty. You're like, oh, this is going to take me years to, like, understand even how to set it up correctly. (laughs) Uh, Because a ring light, you just mostly just turn it on. It's not that complicated. But I don't know. Did the studio lights, did it it take you, like, several weeks to, like, figure out how to actually configure them?
1: You know what? I actually thought it was because, you know, even though I'm technical, when I get something new like this for the first time, I kind of just stare at it blankly for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But for these, they were actually really, really straightforward and easy to use. Uh, they're the DASNY desk mount LED video lights, uh, and not a really not a bad price at all. You get two lights. Uh, it's 195 bucks on Amazon right now, and you also get a remote where you can control the brightness and stuff, and it's super easy. It comes with a clamp, so you can clamp it on your desk, and there's just an on and off button in the back. Uh, if you want to get, you know, super cool and serious about it, you can, you know, Go towards a yellow light, go towards a white light, dim it out if you want to, stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of these lights, I I pretty much got it handled in like, you know, five, ten minutes. All
0: right, good. All right, that's good. That's uh, <laughs> that's a good review because um, I have often found that like you get excited and you start to step up and order some professional equipment. And then um, I have actually left a lot of it in the box for a while because I'm just intimidated. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to need a whole day to figure this out. And I don't have that time. So
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: All right. Studio lights. Sounds like exactly, we know what we want. All right. You're hot. You recommend them. I'm going to check them on after the show. Maybe, maybe it's time awesome. for me to embrace it. <laughs> um, well, as I mentioned before, so, you know, you're, uh, uh, Dev rel as, as the kids like to say at octopus point, we'll get into that in a second, but I thought like, you know, you wrote, uh, a pretty extensive medium post. I think it was about kind of your career trajectory and kind of how, um, you got into it. So I thought maybe we'd go back cause I think, and you know, I'll just kind of set it up here. It says, uh, you know, you were kind of working as like a sysadmin, and then you you had this manager named Carlos, and it seemed like that like really took uh, um, your life in like a new direction. So like, I don't know, maybe set, set the scene for us. Like, so you're working as a sysadmin, not even, doesn't even sound like you're necessarily all that excited about programming, and you get a new manager, Carlos, and, and what happens? What happens from there?
1: Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, it's funny. i Exactly. Like you said, I have like a traditional infrastructure background Um, when I when usually, you know, back then when I thought of coding, I was like, man, this is boring. I don't want to do this. I don't want to write words and look at this stuff all day. I just want to, you know, handle full server stuff. Um, And when I got this new manager, Carlos, which is, you know, still one of my really, uh, really, really good friends to this day. uh, He's like, listen, you know, you should really try out this PowerShell thing. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know, you know, maybe I'll give it a shot because he was really, really into PowerShell and still is. So I was, you know, going through it and I wrote my first line of code and the first line of code that I ever wrote was to get a list of virtual machines from Hyper-V and for some reason, after that, I was just hooked. Uh, you know, I would every single day at lunch, I would literally go to the cafeteria because the building that I was working in had a cafeteria and I would sit there with my uh, PowerShell in a month of lunches book. I would have my personal laptop and I would just sit there and, and learn how to write code and learn how to write PowerShell. And pretty much after that, you know, it, it just took off. Uh, and, and, you know, at this point, I, I pretty much don't go a day without writing at least some code.
0: Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So, I mean, you kind of, it's interesting. You kind of started with like the classic discovery use case. It's like, what exactly is in my environment, which is I think yep. a, pr- a question <laughs> like all of us <laughs> ask maybe, maybe all the time. But um so, but what was it? Cause it sounds like, you know, you were been in tech for a while. Like you're obviously pretty technical doing a lot of sysadmin work. Like when you look back at that moment of like, I don't know, was it the, if you will, the uh, encouragement from Carlos, was it just, you had like a real problem to solve? Like you, you needed to make this list. Like what, like what it, Happened there that really made you kind of, if you will, uh, grasp or fall in love with coding. Whereas maybe that didn't happen earlier in your career.
1: Yeah, it was definitely the encouragement and the first time that somebody actually told me to do something in code. Uh, so before that, you know, nobody really said, "Hey, go do this and, and write some code for it" or anything like that. So you know, with Carlos, he was like, "Hey," he was like, "You know, we need to list these virtual machines." So that was really like, you know, my first thing of like, okay, I need to write code. Um, and then the other thing too, is exactly like you said, the encouragement, Carlos, you know, still again, to this day, he's, you know, my, one of, one of my biggest fans, <laughs> I like to say, you know, he, he's very encouraging. Um, you know, he, even back then, you know, he, he saw the the talent that I had, he saw that, you know, I wanted to move forward in my career, um, you know, and he pushed me, you know, he pushed me to learn new things. He pushed me to, you uh, you know, be be happy with the situation myself because at the time, you know, I I think if you don't have a standard computer science background like I don't, the uh, the imposter syndrome kind of kicks in, like you know, I'm not smart enough to write code, or I'll never be able to remember all of this and stuff like that. Um, you know, so he was very very encouraging and he helped me out a ton with that. Well,
0: that's awesome. I mean, I think that's probably something we don't do enough of of just encouraging people to solve right. some simple what we would quote unquote think of simple problems through coding. Sometimes I think it's even simple, like, helping people, like, just parse, you know, comma-delimited files and Excel. Right. And just kind of – because I, I don't know how many times you've seen someone kind of, like, do something brute force manually, and you're like, hey, let me just show you a couple tricks yep. here, and, you know, we'll take that, you know. So maybe you have 10 virtual servers. It's not so bad. You get 100 or a couple hundred. You're like, oh, this is going to take forever, right? So that's – Exactly. Uh, it's a great entry way into, like, coding, automating some yep. some simple task, and then people sort of, like, sounds like you did. They kind of get into it, and they take it from there. So, so I, this – Open the door, it sounds like. So this opens some door into like your Insys admin. You started to embrace PowerShell. um, But then you kind of progress in your career and you get into being a cloud engineer. So what exactly was a cloud engineer in that role and what did you actually do?
1: Yeah, so after that role with Carlos, I actually went into like a lead technical role, lead systems administrator, if you will. And at that point, I was writing uh, probably like 80% 80% of the time, I was writing code uh, all PowerShell, and I was starting to dabble a little bit in Python for some Linux boxes that I was managing. And you know, at, at that point, I, I really started to see the cloud take off. Um, I was like, just like really into like reading uh, tech blogs and, and you know, checking out what was happening on Reddit and checking out what was happening on Twitter and stuff. And there was this obvious trend that you know Microsoft and, and all these other companies like they weren't talking about. Oh, server 2016 or 2012 anymore. Like, they weren't talking about those features anymore. They were talking about Azure. You know, everybody was talking about AWS. So for me, like, that was a group that was kind of a, a light bulb went off of my head. And I was like, you know, I need to start learning cloud technologies because this is where things are going. Um, and the, the role that I was at at the time, uh, it was actually like more government. So, you know, I <laughs> could. Government isn't too big on changing. Um, So, you know, at the time I was like, hey, I was like, you know, we should start to implement some Azure stuff, maybe source some stuff in S3 buckets and AWS, stuff like that. And nobody really wanted to to make that transition. So I had an opportunity open up. So where it was a cloud engineering and infrastructure engineer role where they needed somebody that had a really, really strong Windows background and a strong uh, automation and scripting background, but somebody that could pick up AWS. So, you know, I was like, you know, this is a really great opportunity They're you know, kind of allowing me to come in and learn it. Uh, so that was awesome. So so I actually got that role, uh, you know, just I don't want to say out of chance. But, you know, I definitely didn't have a lot of the experience that they needed, uh, you know, but they I guess they saw something in me that said, you know, yeah, let's bring this guy on because so he can learn fast.
0: Nice. And so did you spend some time basically learning AWS? Did you already know Azure? So you picked up the AWS skills as well? Like, how, how did that work?
1: No, well, actually, my first cloud that like I was really working at in from a professional perspective was AWS, and then I transferred to Azure afterwards.
0: Okay, well, give us your—you uh, know—I always like to get everyone's take. What's your take? Yeah. You got? Do you have a preference? Are you uh, politically, ag- or politically agnostic or cloud agnostic, as we say? Like, oh, how boy. do you compare oh, them? Boy.
1: Yeah, the pitchforks are going to come out soon. <laughs> um, you know, I I personally lean more towards Azure. Um, I think that AWS is a well-oiled machine. And again, this is totally my opinion. I think that AWS is a well-oiled machine at this point. Um, you know, they're the, quote, 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, you know, a lot of people are using AWS, uh, but we can see from the statistics quarterly that those numbers are changing drastically where it's it's very, very close between Azure and AWS at this point. Um, I do believe that the community for Azure is much larger Uh, just like the microsoft community in general you know like when when i'm on twitter and when i'm on you know other forums and stuff like that like you can really see the vibrant you know community uh versus again totally in my opinion i feel like i don't see that as much in the aws space um so that's one it's it's very community driven which is great two they're just coming out with some really, really cool stuff, uh, you know, like Azure Arc, for example, where you can manage everything in any other cloud on-prem, but in Azure, uh, one of the other things that I, that I notice a lot with Azure too is that they keep their services uh, from an API perspective up to date as much as possible. So give you an example, uh, AKS or Azure Kubernetes services. When you go to AKS and you say, okay, I wanna use this version of the Kubernetes API, they pretty much have almost all of the versions that are still supported, including all of the preview versions that you know would be considered in beta. But then if you look at other clouds, they don't have as many options for you. So I think that's a big driver for me is the fact that I think that Azure is constantly trying to keep themselves up to date, and constantly trying to make services easier. And the reason why is because they're trying to get to number one, obviously.
0: All right, I like it. You went on record there. I like it. Better community. <laughs> I'm going to stay back as your better community and you're going to you gave them a slight nod there for uh, we'll call it better API support. So good. I eh? yep. Hey, listen, I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, disagree with you, uh, but hey, but I'll tell you this, like if, if people have uh, uh, comments and they don't like it, Michael, I'll make sure your Twitter's in the show notes and they can, they can reach oh, out to you yeah. directly. The AWS That's people no, yeah. can come, they may come out and tell you about some APIs you didn't know about, so watch out. I, I hope so. I want to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, um, you know, this kind of led, to so I think, you know, it sounds like you're in the cloud engineer and then it sounds like you, you sort of embraced the the DevOps culture, if you will. Sounds like you went through the DevOps awakening, as I like to call it. What, um, <laughs> what happened? So like you're being a cloud engineer and, and as you started using it, did you just let it naturally get into DevOps? Did you have the, the epiphany? Like, tell me about how that happened.
1: So the biggest thing for me in, in a lot of the roles that I've been in uh, from a full-time perspective and, you know, luckily the, the role that I'm in now, it's, it's very much aligned with what I believe quality should be um but a lot of the roles that i've that i've had you know i've always thought that we should kind of always go a step further we should always think about code quality we should always think about infrastructure quality everything from a quality perspective versus you know hey this feature really needs to get out and you know there's this mythical timeline that somebody just randomly made up and it actually has no impact on anything at all, but we still need to follow it anyways, even if it's riddled with bugs and it's a manual process and everybody's working 16 hours a day to just get it up and running. So I saw a lot of that and that's kind of what moved me to DevOps because um, the the DevOps philosophy you know, is to ensure that you're bringing quality to the table. It's to ensure that you're thinking about what you're doing uh, that, that's I think that's pretty much the gist of it in my head. So, uh, you know, I, I actually, I read the Phoenix Project and that book probably like made my heart and my mind transition into what I really wanted to do and what I really wanted to focus on, uh, which was obviously bringing, shipping, building quality code for our customers. Because um, I think at the end of the day, you know, what it, what it symbolizes right now is the ability to bring quality to the table, um, and and that's really what started pushing me and forcing me in that direction. So uh, what happened was I ended up getting a DevOps role. I moved into a lead DevOps role, uh, where I you know I had a few people reporting to me, and I was doing maybe you know twenty percent management, eighty percent technical. And one of the things that I found was a DevOps role does not equal practicing DevOps. Um, you know, it's so, yes, I think
0: we, I think you got a lot of virtual head nods with that statement, but keep going. So what is it like? Tell us why, why does that, why does that happen?
1: You know what, this is what happened when I transitioned from cloud engineer, to DevOps engineer, and this was at a new company. I was like, oh man, you know, I'm going into a company that they want to practice DevOps and they really want to, you know, embrace what DevOps is supposed to be. Um, and it simply wasn't that. Uh, it was more of like you know, hey, you're uh, you're going to be the infrastructure's code and the CI/CD and the automation person or department, and that's what you guys are doing. Um, it, it's really, you know, at the end of the day, I think that 80% of the DevOps engineer jobs that you see out there, they're really just you know engineers with DevOps in front of their title. Um, that that's kind of what I see a lot. Like I don't see a lot of people truly practicing DevOps, and and there there are a lot of companies that do, but all, there are also a lot of companies that don't. Um, one of the things that I found in my journey was that if there's a company that, for example, they label everybody systems en- a systems engineer or software engineer, that's a company that's actually practicing DevOps because they they're not siloing people. They don't care about titles. What they care about is, okay, you're really good at this. You're title's a uh, systems engineer, but, you know, you're, you, you're, you can focus on this or this person's a software engineer. Okay. They can focus on that. Um, and there's zero silos. So, you know, that, that that's kind of been my journey. And, uh, you know, what I saw from the DevOps space is like, even though if you have that title, it doesn't mean that you're practicing DevOps, which is obviously unfortunate.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, you hit on like kind of a good little tell. I think when you're looking at companies, you can often just go to the job board where they see their positions yeah. and uh it's a good tell around like how specialized the various job functions are it kind of gives you an indication that you know it's probably relatively siloed or or not right like you said or it's or it's fairly generic so uh it's hard though but i mean to be fair about it right devops is hard this is why there's like so many devops culture talks like we kind of make fun of them at times on the show but this is, you know the reason <laughs> there is, is that every i mean not everyone gets it or a lot of people right have done, you know, we, what we should say is a lot of people have deployed automation tools, but they haven't yep. really embraced DevOps. I mean, that's really what most, of the, probably most people and most companies, if you really studied it, you'd say you've yep. implemented some automation, you haven't really made the switch to the the cultural shift to DevOps. But, I mean, it's right. hard. It's hard. Well, it sounds no, like, you absolutely. know, you are one of many who have read The yeah. Phoenix Project, <laughs> and it seems like everyone that reads The Phoenix project eventually ends up in uh, developer relations, which is where you are now. So <laughs> let me start with what does DevRel mean to you? How
1: do you define it? Yeah, so uh, I'll take a step back and uh, let, let you know, like kind of how I got into it. And and this will also explain what it means to me. So once I was uh, I was in that DevOps role, I, I ended up getting really fed up uh, with kind of how things were and how a lot of organizations weren't practicing DevOps uh, or at least weren't, you know, caring about quality. So what ended up happening was it was, and, and you know, it's maybe it's not the best thing, uh, <laughs> but it started impacting me, like, mentally. You know, it started keeping me up at night. It started, you know, I was constantly thinking about it, like, how can I get through to everybody that we need to ensure quality is there? Um, <clears throat> and that's when I started doing a lot of content creation. So I do, started doing a lot of, Blogs started doing a lot of uh, video training. And what I found was I can take these ideas that I have in my head about quality and push them in, in into people that like actually care about it you know those, those are the people that are looking at the video courses and looking at the blogs and stuff like that so I ended up quitting my full time job and I started my own LLC uh, which is like the cloud dev. engineering stuff that you'll see on my social media and stuff like that and I was working independently for about six months and that's when I really started to fall in love with DevRel and, and, and advocacy and stuff like that because I mean you gotta think about it like it's such a role like you have you have an opportunity to continue writing code continue delivering a uh, good quality code you have the ability to work on a product you know like Endeavor and stuff like you can you can very well work on production level code you can work on production stuff uh, even stuff that's like community driven on github and stuff you can absolutely work on it and then on the other side you get to teach people about it you get to really show people what it looks like to write a function or to build a web API or something like that. And you get to show them that in in a in a way that is different from everybody else. Cause I think that every content creator has a different way of expressing it. So you get to talk with people, you get to help people, you get to write code, you get to build stuff, and you get paid for it. I mean it's 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 pretty cool in my opinion.
0: Yeah, no, that's a pretty awesome uh, story there. That you actually left your job and uh, went out on your own. I mean, that just kind of shows you the passion, right? You clearly were yeah. ready, ready to uh, go evangelize the world. Well. So, what happened? So, it sounds like you're you're kind of out on your own. You're you're doing uh, some of this uh, content creation on your own. And does Octopus Octopus deploy? Did they call you up and offer you a job? Like, tell me that story.
1: Yeah, so it's actually funny because you know I was speaking with Octopus even prior to uh, you know leaving leaving my job and stuff like that and you know kind of getting the ball rolling there um and then i you know i ended up going on my own a little bit but then I, when i was on my own i was actually writing blog posts for octopus i was you know one of my clients you know full of clients and uh you know after that you know I, I would continue talking to you know the octopus and stuff and a, a role ended up opening up for a developer advocate and i was like ah you know what this, this definitely seems like a role that I would, you know, be very, very interested in. Um, you know, we spoke and stuff about, you know, what the role would look like and all that. And essentially, it was really what I was doing. Um, you know, my, my, main, my main concern at the time was like, I, I still wanted the ability to build my brand, you know, I still do a lot of stuff under my brand. Um, and, you know, luckily, Octopus was okay with that, of course, as long as it doesn't interfere with, you know, what you're doing in your full-time job, obviously that makes sense. Um, you know, but they were totally cool with, you know, me keeping my brand and me still doing, you know, my books and my YouTube stuff and my blog posts and all of that. So yeah, that's kind of how I transitioned into it. Um, and the thing is about octopus and one of the reasons why I really wanted to work with them is, and I'm totally not just saying this cause I work there. Um, but they're very open, you know, like they, they put their handbook, their employee handbook online, like, Oh, like publicly, so people can see it. Um, They want to be able to show people like this is really what we're doing here. And, and I'm telling you, honestly, like they, they truly care about the product, they truly care about what code they're pushing out. I mean, I, I've been writing code for a bit and like I haven't I've never written as many unit tests and integration tests before in my in my entire career until I got to Octopus. You know, I was doing it a little bit before, but, you know, we really hone in on the quality aspects of things, Um, you know, and and everybody's super nice. And in the community, uh, in Octopus and all the employees, like everybody's super, super nice and everybody actually cares about what they're working on, you know, and not to mention, honestly, like employees at octopus like we're not just numbers you know we're not just we're not just a person getting paid to do a job like they, they actually care about the well-being of their employees uh, and that's you know what really pushed me to want to work at octopus
0: hello from twilio today's show is sponsored by twilio businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world whether you're delivering packages treating patients or running a global customer support center your customers need you to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that millions of developers trust to build seamless communications experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Whatever your use case, Twilio has your back. It's time to build. Visit twilio.com to learn more. And of course, we thank Twilio for sponsoring our show. All right. Well, that's a strong endorsement. You can tell you like it. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that kind of leads me you know, to the next question. Like, okay, for those of us who don't know, give us the pitch. What exactly yeah. is Octopus Deploy? What does it do?
1: So Octopus Deploy focuses 100% on deployments. Um, so, you know, you look at other tools, you look at other CI/CD tools, and they're focused on, little bit of everything, you know, you got a little bit of builds in there, you got a little bit of, you know, testing, you got a little bit of deployments, maybe you got a wiki in there, uh, you know, maybe you have like an artifact storage, for example, like you have all of this stuff. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm totally putting the disclaimer out that this is my opinion. Um, you have, you have a whole bunch of this stuff, right? You have tools that do a whole bunch of everything. Octopus Deploy does one thing, they are 100% focused on deployments. Now, not just software deployments and shipping application code, but also infrastructure code. So, you know, over the past few years, we've seen the rise in infrastructure developers and the need. You know, you're talking Ansible, you're talking Terraform, you're talking all these infrastructure as code and configuration management tools, and you need a way to deploy that code as well. So Octopus Deploy doesn't focus on just the application. It focuses on the infrastructure and the infrastructure developers to ship their code as well. So, you know, the, the high-level pitch is like what Octopus focuses on is 100% deployments and doing those deployments well.
0: Okay. So what, you know, this is kind of the, the dumb question here, but like when you say deployment in this case, like what do you mean? Like when you say we're going to do a deployment, what does that mean in the Octopus
1: lingo? Sure. So you can have two different scenarios. Let's think about infrastructure for a second. So let's say you have, you know, 10 virtual machines that you need to deploy to Azure. And those 10 virtual machines need to be in, you know, a dev stage, they need to be in UAT stage, they need to be in a production stage. So let's say you write some sort of Terraform code to do the infrastructure's code portion, and then you slap on a little bit of Ansible to do the configuration management portion. What you can do with Octopus is you can use something called the runbooks. And in those runbooks, you can actually deploy that code to Azure, for example. Um, you don't even need to use runbooks. Maybe you just use, you know, a standard task or a step like you would see in other CI/CD systems. So that's one scenario. The other scenario is you can actually use runbooks to provision workstations if you wanted to. So a lot of the, a lot of the people at Octopus, like they actually have runbooks set up to where if their machine ever works, like they could just run a runbook and it installs everything for them automatically. So it's kind of think about it like MDM on steroids almost. Uh, where you can just literally provision everything. You can also provision servers and things like that. Uh, When you get to the software side, you know, the traditional, like what do we think of continuous deployment and continuous delivery as? Well, we think of that as taking a binary or an artifact adding in a few steps, you know, maybe some connection strings, maybe it's being deployed to Azure web services, maybe it's being deployed to uh, Azure EC2 instances, right? And you, and you kind of bundle up those steps together and then you deploy your application. So that's the software deployment side of things.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense. So when you think about, um, there's because there's so much, you know, so many tools, so many automation tools, like when you're like, am I integrating with another pipeline tool? Like what am I integrating with maybe the pipeline tools that come from AWS and Azure? Like how are, how do you find that people are utilizing it today? Like how do they snap it into what they're doing?
1: Sure. So uh, the the short answer is yes.
0: (laughs) It's everything, right? I'm sure. But what's maybe, let me narrow the question. Like what's the most popular or the recommended way to do it? Let's say that.
1: So it's funny, you know, like you look at a lot of other CI/CD tools and stuff like that, and they're like, you know, use our tool for this, use our tool for the, the build process and the deployment process. Really what we say at Octopus is, you know, we actually have something on the homepage where it says, you know, Octopus versus Azure DevOps, but versus is, crosses out, uh, is crossed out and it says end. So Octopus deploy end uh, Azure DevOps. And that's really what we think about when we think about other tools. So if you're using, for example, Azure DevOps or Jenkins or Team City for your build process, right, to actually package up your code, build it, or turn it into an artifact, and then you need a place to deploy it, we absolutely say, use those products. If you want to use those products to build, absolutely. If you want to deploy with us, absolutely. We have integration into Jenkins, into Team City, into Azure DevOps. We're working on integration into GitHub Actions. So we really... What what we like to do, you know, and even me, like as a developer advocate, I'm I'm talking to a lot of developers daily. What I what I say is, listen, like, use the tool that works best for you. If it's Team City and Octopus, if it's Azure DevOps or GitHub Actions and Octopus, great. Now, if it is an Octopus, okay, that's fine. But the only thing that I ask is, like, let me know why. You know, right. let me know why. Let me know what you don't like so I can speak to the product team so I can speak to the engineering team so we can work together to get either get those features or to fix a feature or to add in some implementation that maybe your organization needs so really what we're about is like we're not about you know buy our product we're really about what works best for you and and that's literally what we do like you know I'll tell you a lot of the content that I create for like the blog and stuff for example doesn't even have anything to do with Octopus you know, a lot of the people that I talk to and stuff, you know, they might not even be using Octopus Deploy. I might just be helping them, just for, purely from an advocacy perspective, to be able to help them get up and running with with whatever they're using, whether it's Azure DevOps or Jenkins or anything.
0: Yeah, no, I think that. I mean, I think that's great, and I think that's what and why I think DevRel is a fun role is that you just right. at, at the end of the day, it's like help as many people, take everybody, make them and turn them into an evangelist, um, and exactly. good things will happen for you. Um, but I think, you know, as you were talking there, it's like one thing I, I sometimes talk to clients and customers about is just when we talk about, you know, the pipeline, right? CICD, because that often is just like thrown around a lot. It's like, I just think of it like, you know, every product has to like earn its place in the pipeline, you know, and that's really what it comes down to. It's like, yeah, there's like a million of these tools and it's, you probably should start with like one, you know what I mean? Like just get the basic automation going. But then as you start to ask more questions, um, that's where like. You start to think of more tools right and i do think yep. you'll find more tools that offer that value benefit of like well it's a little bit more complicated because it's going to make your pipeline more complicated right but at the same time as long as it's earning the place it's like making something a lot simpler than it was before you're probably on the right track and you know and there's yep. probably also the inverse of that is like there's probably some pipeline clean cleanup you can sometimes do right where it's like you know i don't know if we need three, three different tools that are this specialized, it sounds like we could get away with the generic version of something else. Right. So, um, you know, the pipeline never, uh, it never static, right. The pipeline's always changing and and that's the way I think of it.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And and I think that's how it should be, you know, exactly like you said, Brandon, start off basic, get a build going, get an artifact deploy it to, you know, a virtual machine, some test virtual machine and really see how it works. And then after that, you can start focusing on the, okay, do I have unit tests for my builds? Do I have integration tests? Am I doing any type of static code analysis? And then you go to the deployment section. It's like, okay, what am I doing to monitor my deployments? Am I using continuous monitoring? You know, am I spinning up a, a monitoring application or platform while my deployment is going on? And then you can really start to think about, exactly what your needs are in your organization.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, you know, often the, the problems sort of drive the uh, the adoption. It's like, well, yeah, you spin it up, you automated your deployment. Great. And then you figured out like, oh, well, I have no idea what happens and I'm not monitoring everything. And well, then it's like, why don't you add monitoring? And then, oh, man, we should do like red, green or what is it? Blue, green deployments. Well, maybe yep. Spinnaker, right? You know, it's like a lots of things kind of reveal themselves over time. So yeah. Um, yeah. But I it's like whenever people like walk in, they don't have any pipeline and they come in with all the tools. I'm always like, oh, we got to slow down. We got to like, whoa. No, that's
1: that's the thing. It's because I think this is the thing that happens a lot. And I totally disagree with this. And for whoever whoever is listening, try your best to move it in a different direction. What happens is you have an exec that comes in or, you know, you have management uh, or anybody and they say, you know, hey. I need a solution to do this, 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 and that problem with that is, is that you don't know what you need to do before you jump in. So I think POCs, MVPs, whatever you want to call them, they're crucial in this journey. Like you must start there because I can guarantee that you have zero idea what you actually need to implement before you even play around with it. You know, that's really what it comes down to, playing around with it. Once you play around with it, then you can say, ah, you know what, I need some tests here. Ah, I need some monitoring here. So I, I think the, the biggest step, if you're just breaking into the, the CICD journey, is play around with it first, you know, let management know, hey, I'm gonna do a POC, I'm gonna do an MVP. After I do this and I get some analysis, I can come back to you and say, okay, we need this now. I think that's how it should always go. It should never be like, hey, uh, we heard about this thing, Kubernetes. Let's buy some Kubernetes and throw our stuff in there. We're going to go a thousand times faster and beat all of our competition. No, it doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah, I think you know one of the most common things I've seen is uh, it's like the PowerPoint problem. It's like maybe if you'll go to like a <laughs> developer conference or a virtual conference now or they just – even a lot of stuff on websites and they – pipelines are like beautiful to uh if you will to build powerpoint slides around they're just you can build (laughs) lots of graphs and like there's like lots of icons and like i mean it's just great like i mean who doesn't want to build some great powerpoint it's just a it's just it gives you this very uh good feeling but then people bring back these like big these powerpoint slides like i don't know it's always like netflix some netflix group has done something really great and then they show you the slide and people bring it back and they're like this is what we have to do and it's like no. Probably you just need one. Maybe you just need two tools. Like leave everything else off. But then your PowerPoint looks bad because there's only two, right? And it's like don't don't aspire for the PowerPoint. Just just get some basic stuff uh, running. And eventually one day your, power, your PowerPoint slide will have a very nice pipeline graph. Just don't get too exactly. caught up in that.
1: Yep. Don't worry about the aesthetics when you first start. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So you, <laughs> well,
0: you've mentioned uh, code quality or quality rather. You've mentioned quality many times, and yep. you seem to uh, one of your your passions. I would say is. Uh, Code quality and, and specifically around the Go programming language. So let's let's spend a few minutes talking about that. So a couple of things: one, like why why is Go the Go programming language so great? It seems like you love it and you're using it all uh, all the time. And two, like what has gotten you passionate about code quality?
1: Yeah. So to start off with Go, I mean, I've I've played around with a lot of different languages: PowerShell, Python, Node, C Sharp. Um, you know, and for I, You know, I wish I had a really cool explanation or like an epiphany for you, but I actually don't. I just I started writing Go because I'm actually uh, I'm, I'm writing a Terraform provider for Octopus Deploy right now. And Terraform providers are written in Go. Um, and I started using Go and I was like, man, this is so cool. Like, I, I still can't really put my finger on it because a lot of people ask me, like, why Go? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> for me at least, you know, but but there are some key things about Go that I really enjoy. So for example, it's, it's, how can I put it? It's like writing C++ in Python. So you get the speed, you get things like pointers, right? Where you can specify what values, what network addresses you want to use. But then you also have the simplicity. So it's not like, you know, for example, writing a thousand lines of C for something that you could do in 10 lines of code in Python, for example. Um, it's kind of like that where you have simplicity, but you also have some really advanced level topics and go. So that's one thing I really like the idea of, you know, being able to write it simplistic, but also having those advanced features. Um, the other thing that I really like about it too, is like static typing. I hate when there's like you write some sort of code and you don't know like what the output is supposed <laughs> to be—is it supposed right. to be an int or a string or whatever? Um, or is it supposed to be like your own custom type that you've written? So I really like the idea of static types, uh, and that's really where like code quality comes into play too, where it's like you know, you 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 must define it. Like code or a code, Go will yell at you if you don't define it. So that's, that's one of the things that I really like about it. Uh, The other thing that I really like about it is I I truly believe that it was built for the cloud and we will see it more in the cloud. Um, Because if you think about it, you know, a lot of tools that we're talking about in this podcast are written in Go. Terraform, Docker, Kubernetes, there's a lot of stuff that's written in Go. And the reason why it's, it's, very well written is because, in my opinion, because it's written in Go, um, and I think that's why people choose Go to, you know, write these projects and uh, things like, you know, like I said, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, because it's a really great language to use. Um, there are some like weird things about it, like enums don't really exist in Go. Um, I think they're like they're working on a feature for that and stuff right now for Go too. Um, so, so you will see some like weird quirks if if you're used to say like C Sharp or something, for example. Um, but there are ways around it with like different interface types and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So that's, that's my,
0: that's, so that's my your thing. I go, well, yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I feel like maybe that's like um, you know, like it almost should be like a personality question. It's like, are you a yeah. static typing person or a dynamic typing? Person? Cause like everyone yeah. is very like, I, I generally feel like people do fall on one side or the other of yeah. that question. And generally people are very dug in. They really like, they, they're, they're, you're, you're not going to typically uh, – like there will be kind of the the obligatory, oh, right tool, right job. You know, I, yep. I just use the right thing. But like, when you're like, okay, forget it. Putting aside that for a second, it's like what do you believe in, static typing or dynamic typing? Uh, <laughs> I feel like you get a lot of uh, different um, answers. I don't know. I've always been on the static typing side. It's like just tell me at compile time. Tell me beforehand. I'd want to know about the error now. Don't like – don't just send me some obscure object error, you know, uh, during runtime, but I don't know, like, you know, the, 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 you know, and then this is back in the day. It was sort of like, uh, like what was the first thing programming language people like i don't know this is a long time ago now but it's like are you a small talker or like a java person like that was another kind of like (laughs) you know or did you kind of come up with the c c++ java chain or did you kind of like somehow did you get off track in life and like learn lisp and small talk and now like everything's (laughs) just an object there is no there is no objective truth to anything so I, i don't know i find that that's usually uh, the path people come to these uh, decisions around. So, all right, but yeah. we won't, uh, we will not uh, belabor that anymore. So, well, you know, you, <laughs> you're obviously passionate about go and I know you're writing a lot of it, but you also seem to be talking about, you know, a lot about code quality. I think you're even aspiring here to write an entire book around, yeah. um, you know, do a uh, better code quality or achieving good co- code quality in go. So, so walk us through that, like whether it's go or anything else, like how do you define code quality And what should, you know, people maybe getting into programming, what should they be thinking about um, when they think about writing quality code?
1: Yeah, so here's the thing about quality code. The really cool thing about it is, is guess what? You can do it in any language. (laughs) I'm just choosing (laughs) to do it and go. Um, So, you know, I like to take it a step further. You know, you see a lot of courses out there and you see a lot of books out there that are like, you know, here's how you learn how to write a program or here's how to here's how you learn how to use a programming language and you know those those are absolutely necessary you need those starter level courses and books and stuff like that to get started Um, but I think the one thing that we're really lacking a lot in terms of content is focusing on not just how you're writing the code or how cool it is or building the next twitter or or a web scraper or something like that um it's really about how you're writing that code and not only how you're writing that code but how you're using other packages so i'll give you an example let's say you're writing some code and you're using like a python sdk or a go sdk or something for aws and you know, you're writing it and you're using a function, you know, or a method. And what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to return, say, a string type to you. Well, how do you know that it's actually doing that? Well, the the usual answer is you're expecting AWS or whatever SDK you're using to handle that for you. You are expecting them to say, yup, this is supposed to be a string. We've done all the tests and the validations on it. But then you come to like the the idea of edge cases where, okay, that's cool. I appreciate you guys doing that for me. However, I want to do a test for myself. I want to know that this function that I'm using is in fact returning a string. So how do you do that? Well, you know, you can do testing on on, uh, different types and stuff based on function and all that and confirm that, those types are being returned to you in the way they're supposed to. You can use asserts and things like that. But I feel that a lot of developers don't go down that route because you know, there's there's that assumption, you know, and uh, there's always there's that saying the assumption is the mother of all F ups, right? So it's it's the idea of taking everything that you would originally assume so for like let's say you're using an SDK and putting that into your code, but testing across every scenario that you possibly can now you're talking about unit tests and you're talking about mock tests and integration tests and and linters and static code analysis all of this stuff but taking those concepts and not thinking about them as like you know a second class citizen thinking about them like you know let's say you you pick your hand up and you scratch your head you're not thinking i'm now picking my hand up and i'm raising it and now i'm putting it on my head and i'm scratching it you're kind of just doing it because it's just natural it's just That's just what happens. If you have a scratch on your head, you scratch your head. Same thing should apply when you're thinking about code quality. Like those tests, those edge cases, everything should just be (laughs) not second nature to you, first nature. It should just randomly happen, and it should just be there, and you should just be writing code and be like, oh, I put in a test, and I didn't even realize I was putting in a test. So my idea behind code quality is the same thing as any quality, you know, from an infrastructure perspective, from a development perspective. It's the idea of writing or doing something with the emphasis of, okay, how do I make sure that every single thing that's happening here works and works for everybody else that's using it?
0: no I like that so I mean I think sometimes people would call that like defensive programming right like how um you know it's kind of like trust no one right like everything that comes in you kind of have to and I think this also often um Another form of that is, you know, sometimes people call that like hardening the code or just making it more secure. It's like, you can't trust anything that's coming into you. You need to check that it is, um, you know, the the classic example, like SQL injection or something like that. It's like, yeah, they gave me a string, but like, does this have like weird SQL commands? You know, like what's going on in here? I need to like, uh, to do a little double double checking or a little homework. So, uh, and I think also you kind of touched on test-driven development, right? That's, uh, um, you know, I would say that's like, often talked about done sometimes right. <laughs> maybe not right. all the time I,
1: uh,
0: I. but how do you balance it so i think there is you know i think there is always the feeling of especially when you're doing like the happy path programming for the first moment yep. like you're trying to get your thing going it's like oh i got it working the api key works and i'm getting the stuff yep. back and you know there is always this feeling of we need to go fast add more features like what how do you make the case that okay actually go back and spend some time or to what you said earlier, just make it second nature. Like never write anything that doesn't first, if you will go through an error check, all the things coming into the API, because I think people, the common complaints would be like, it's going to take too long. I'm yep. busy. I want to, it's not as fun, right? Like some people don't think that exactly. test is fun. Like, so what's, what do you tell people? How do you convince them that, Hey, is it like eat your vegetables? Cause it's good for you. Or do you have some other <laughs> message?
1: No. So, so here's the thing. You're absolutely right. Uh, writing tests isn't sexy, right? Like, you know, it's not like you're building a new Twitter and you're like, oh man, this is really cool. I just wanna add all these new features in and do all this stuff. But let's let's put in a scenario for a second. You're, I don't know, using an SDK or some Terraform provider or something like that. And you're running through it and you go to create a resource and you get a weird error back, item not found. And you're like, oh, well, this is unfortunate. And then maybe you hit GitHub or you do a little bit of Googling and you're like, oh, man, nobody's really talking about this. And then you go on GitHub and you open up an issue and you're like, hey, uh, you know, I'm expecting this back, uh, but I got this. And then you get a response. And the response is always something along the lines of, oops, we got to fix this bug. We're going to add it into a new version. I mean, how many times have you seen that? We've all seen that. (laughs) So that's maybe – one to two days of effort versus if you know what you're supposed to be bringing back, you know that you're supposed to be bringing that string back and you check for it in your code. So now guess what? Once compile time occurs, you're like, oh, well, this is bringing me back the wrong uh, type or this is bringing me back the wrong resource. And then you can go and you can open up that GitHub issue. So just by spending 15 to 30 minutes on that test, you've saved yourself 24 to 48 hours of work of going through, of troubleshooting, of Googling around, of sitting there scratching your head, people asking you what's going on. You're like, I don't know. It saves you that I don't know. And I think that's really the, the point that I want to drive home is it's, it's, there's no assumptions anymore. When you're thinking about quality code and you're thinking about every single edge t- case to test against, there is zero assumptions. Like it, it's literally impossible to make an assumption at that point. It's impossible to walk into a meeting and be like, nah, I don't know. I got to check on that. You just know, you right. know, because you put in the guards right from the start.
0: Yeah. I, I always think, you know, there's like two ways to answer this question. It's always, you know, kind of eat, eat your vegetables because I told you so. Right. No one really likes yeah. that. But sometimes I think it's, it's just uh, as simple as like, we can either do this right now, or we're all going to be on a, a Zoom call at like 3.30 in the morning right. when we're trying <laughs> trying to fix right. this. And no one's going to like remember that like, oh, uh, we didn't check for this thing. And and we're going to be tired and everyone's going to be mad and our families will be mad at us because we're wasting yep. our weekend. Um, And, you know, to some degree, right, that's a, that's a, a learned response, right? You just, yep. you know, like if you've never been on that call, it just seems like uh, – something that never happened, then it happens. And you're like, you know what? <laughs> you no, know we should do, uh, we should spend some time. Uh, yeah. uh, but also too, I just think, you know, this is the, the biggest thing though is, uh, you know, the idea too, I do not think for the management, it's the classic, you know, uh, we got uh, to, we got to go slow to go fast or the, you know, kind of the cliches, yep. like, you know, brakes are on a car, uh not to slow it down. It's to allow it to go fast, right? Because if we don't have exactly. brakes, then we can't no, do fast. it. So that's like the other uh, cliche. That's what I always, you always got to tell your executives like, listen, you know, we want to go fast. This is why we got to do this stuff, right? Uh, yeah. Uh If you want to just hack it out, like, it'll probably work for the first couple of releases and then, you know, it, it'll probably be a disaster after that. Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, oh, exactly. All right. Well, you know, is, uh, tell me about this book. So it, you're, you passionate. So you're writing a book. Tell us about the book about go and what are you writing? What's it about? And you know, what, um, when will it come out? Let's put you on the spot, make you give us a yeah. date.
1: <laughs> so the book is all around. It's literally called quality code and go. Um, and the really cool thing about this book is, you know, yeah, it's written in go when you're using like Go packages and stuff like that for testing, but the ideas and the concepts around it will be able to transition to any programming language. So the ideas of testing, the ideas of documentation, the ideas of consistency—it it, it transfers to every language. I've just happened to pick Go to do it. I could have done it in any language in the same exact format. So that's that's one portion of it. The other portion of it is it's really tied towards cloud development. So, you know, by nature, I I very much think of myself as a cloud developer. I'm, I'm very much in Azure and in AWS and stuff like that. So there are a few chapters on like how to get started with the Azure SDK for Go, how to get started with the AWS SDK for Go, and then how to write that code and how to form it in a way that you are ensuring quality 100% of the way through. Um, you know, and the thing about quality is that it does not it's not just unit tests and integration tests. It's, for example, write variable names in a way that people know what they are. Don't just put V as a variable name because I don't know what that is. You know, if it's supposed to be, if it's supposed to output some sort of car, put car is the variable name, things like that, just consistency in your code, um, you know, static code analysis and linting before you even build the code, before you even attempt to deploy it and see all of those horrible X errors in your CI/CD process, test it before it even deploys and builds with linting. Um, another big thing too is, you know, listen, none of us like to do this but documentation, documentation is needed. It is absolutely necessary if you want to ensure quality for anything that you're doing, even if it's just scripting, automation, anything, you always want to write documentation. So really the idea around this book is to take what you already know from a programming and development perspective and put in the back of your head, okay, quality, 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 always make that, you know, your first nature response. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much the idea behind this book. Now, when it's going to come out, it's actually already out. So I was originally going to publish with a publisher. I decided to self publish instead. The reason why is because I wanted to do lean publishing and I didn't want any copyright issues. I wanted to be able to document the journey as much as possible uh, for people to see it. So I went with Gumroad. So, uh, it's actually available on Gumroad right now. Two chapters are already written and completed and up there, uh, and now I just have eight more chapters to go, which you know I would assume probably in the next four to five months, after like editing and all that stuff. So like fully complete, maybe another four to five months, but you can actually (laughs) go and get it.
0: Good check it out. Well, good, man. Well, hey, listen, writing a book, it's it's a huge undertaking. So good for you that you've kind of committed it. You put it out there. So now people are going to hold you accountable. Uh, There's a bunch (laughs) of good stuff, though. I saw like you're going to have Docker in it. You're going to have a bunch of other SDKs. So uh, it's fantastic. I think it's great. All right. And we'll make sure we put a, a link in the show notes here. Um, so cool. people who can go check it out. So um, before we wrap up here, you know, you know, it's like uh, you, know, you used to just ask for recommendations general in life. But, you know, with quarantine going on for many of us, at least here in the United States and I don't know, probably around the world still. I, I was just like, what are your best uh, either a dev, uh, dev advocate quarantine tips or I don't know, just quarantine tips in general? How are you making it through this time?
1: So I think the biggest thing is focus on writing content. Uh, that, that's obviously the easiest thing when you're quarantined, right? You know, if you can't go out and do anything, you can sit on your couch with your laptop and write a blog article. The other thing too is, is of course, podcasts like we're doing right now. Podcasts are a great thing for developer advocates. Uh, another big thing too is, you know, get into as many virtual conferences as you, as you can. Like right now, it is much easier to speak at a, it's much easier to speak at a conference right now than it is when they're in person, you know, it, if you're speaking at a conference in person, you got to travel, you got to get on a plane, you got to do this, you got to do that. With a virtual conference, I'm literally just doing it at the same place that I'm at 8 hours a day anyways. <laughs> so the biggest thing is you know try to get into as many virtual conferences as possible.
0: Yeah, like I like your tips there. I think you know in some ways um you kind of the first one you hit on is maybe the one that gets overlooked the, the most is that Well, everyone's kind of is stuck at home in quarantine, and um, now's a great time to, like, just spend more time writing. I mean, there's no shortage. Like, you always need better written content. So I think sometimes everyone's trying to, like, start a, uh, uh, a streaming channel. I mean, we've tried to do this at Software Defined Talk as well, and it's great. I mean, those are obviously fantastic, but, like, there's nothing wrong with just, like, more blog posts. Write a book, write a short, you know, ex- explainer, like that kind of content. Like when it's well done and it's written, I mean, it's timeless, right? It never goes out of style. We never have enough good advice on how to do things. So I like your uh, statement there. All right. Well, with that, uh, where can people find you on the web?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's at the NJ DevOps guy. Uh, LinkedIn, you just look up Michael Levan. And I also have a website slash blog. It's uh, www.clouddev.engineering, no like.com or anything. It's literally just .engineering. Uh, those are the three primary places that you can find me.
0: All right. Well, fantastic. Well, listen, I'll put a link to all of those uh, websites in the show notes, and you can definitely uh, reach out to Michael. I'm sure he'll be happy to uh, hear from you. And Michael, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, Brandon.
0: Absolutely. And for everyone else, if this is the first time uh, you've ever heard Software Defined Talk, well, welcome. Glad to have you. You can subscribe to the podcast by going to uh, softwaredefinedtalk.com. Uh, you can probably also go back and just uh, subscribe right now in the podcast player. You're listening to it. Um, on our website, though, you can uh, join our Slack. You can find us on social media. Uh, if you want any uh, Software Defined Talk stickers, I'll be happy to send you one. Here's what you got to do. Just send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.